Good morning, church. God is good. And all the time. And it's August in Calamesa. Not only can you see it, can you hear it, but you can smell it, right? <laughs> with the hay up here. Um, what a blessing we have with August and Calamesa. And Dr. Bob, we just want to thank you right off for all of your planning and organizing and making this a special month for us. So thank you. Thank you very much. I'm here to introduce the speaker, but I don't feel like we need much of an introduction. And uh, so I'm going to keep it real brief so that Pastor Lee has as much time as he needs this morning. Um, And what I want to say is, first of all, thank you, Pastor Lee and Margie, for coming to Calamesa. We know you have a busy schedule, but we're blessed that you came to this little place called Calamesa. And I know, I just, I just, if... If God has worked through their life, if the Holy Spirit has worked through their life to draw you closer to Jesus this week, can you say amen? Amen. amen. So the Holy Spirit's been working through you in powerful ways, and we just want to thank you because we know that you truly live a life of faith, that year by year you're just trusting however he leads, and we thank you for taking that faith journey because your total surrender to him overflows into our lives. So I want to thank you so much. And, uh, you know, a revival, you have to also learn how to survive a revival seminar. <laughs> and Pastor Lee is going to talk about that today. So, Pastor Lee, would you come up? And I just want to turn it over to you so that you can, Holy Spirit can do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do this morning. Let's, let's welcome Pastor Lee up here this morning, would you? hope-filled morning so far and it's my hope and my prayer and Margie's as well that the fire of revival will grow brighter and brighter until the day you return and as we talk about how to keep the fire stoked I pray for extra presence of the Holy Spirit among us right now in Jesus name amen Jesus tells us seeds and soil parable and um, you're probably familiar with it. I just want to highlight one of the kinds of soil right up front here at the beginning. It's the rocky ground soil found in Matthew 13. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and it sprang up quickly. So it looked good at first. It looked good. It started off. I said, wow, look at that. Boom. But notice, when the sun rose, this uh, sprang up so quickly was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. There's something about roots that's important to keeping a plant growing towards the sun. In Desire of Ages, page 83, it says, Many attend religious services and are refreshed by the work of God. So we could even say that many have come to the, the revival seminar here during the last week. <clears throat> and we've been refreshed together. We've sensed the Holy Spirit's presence among us. And that's a good thing. But notice, um, through neglect of meditation, watchfulness, and prayer, this many that have attended, lose the blessing and find themselves more destitute than before they received it. Now the paragraph continues, often they feel that God's dealt severely with them. They do not see that the fault is their own. By separating themselves from Jesus, they've shut away the light of his presence. Well, how did they separate themselves from Jesus? We'll go back again through neglect of meditation, watchfulness, and prayer. That's how we, many times we think we separate ourselves from Jesus by being naughty and doing bad things. But by simply neglecting to take, take that thoughtful hour every day in contemplation of the life of Christ through his word and through prayer, we end up losing what we had. Many times people go to a men's retreat or a women's retreat or they go to a camp meeting. Here you have this August camp meeting focus. Or they go to some kind of a um, convocation or a rally or, or perhaps they have a week of prayer at a, at a Christian school and, and they say it was really good. They had a grand time. It was inspirational. They were richly blessed. And then it sort of fades away and they begin looking for another camp meeting or another convocation where they can kind of recapture what they lost. It doesn't need to fade. And that's why the title for this presentation is Surviving a Revival Seminar. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Which of these is easier? Buying a puppy or raising one? 
Oh, isn't it cute? Oh, look at that little fluffy ball of fur. Oh, look at the little pink tongue and the little wet nose. Oh, let's buy one. Let's get two of them. <laughs> and then comes the trouble, right? Which is easier, planting a garden or tending it by weeding it? Which is easier, planting or weeding? I think we'd say planting. Which is easier, enrolling in a college course or taking a final examination, enrolling, which is easier, enlisting in the military or fighting a war, enlisting. One more for the ladies only to answer, men are not qualified for this one, which is easier, giving birth to a child or raising it through its teenage years. I'm not suggesting that giving birth is easy. That would be foolish for me to say that in front of a bunch of women. I think Carol Burnett once said to men, if you want to know what it's like to have, give birth, take your lower lip and pull it over your head. <laughs> so I wouldn't suggest it's easy, but I think that women would agree that by comparison, the raising of a child all the way through the teenage years is even a bigger challenge. I saw a bumper sticker that said, you can't scare me, I have teenagers. So, which of these is easier, becoming a Christian or remaining one? You catch the drift. You can see where we're going with these questions. In every case, the truth was that some very significant effort needed to follow up the original investment or the startup. Significant effort follows. And we have referred to that significant effort this week. We've referred to it in 1 Timothy 6.12 where Paul reminds us that we need to fight the good fight of faith. He wouldn't call it a fight if it was easy. He wouldn't call it a fight if there was no effort involved. But he mentions the kind of fight that's the good fight is the faith fight. And once again, faith is a relationship word. And the way you grow faith is by becoming better acquainted with the object of your faith. So what that really means is that the fight of faith is the effort we put into morning by morning seeking to know and grow in a personal relationship with Jesus. That's the fight of faith. <clears throat> and Mary of Magdala is perhaps my favorite character in the Bible outside of Jesus because she's such a, a stellar example of fighting this fight. Every time you find Mary in the Bible, she's always at the feet of Jesus. Every time. And she shows up numerous places. I'm going to highlight that because I just want us to catch kind of a sense of what Mary caught. When we think of Mary, the first thing I think most of us remember or think of is this passage here where Mary and Martha and Lazarus are hosting Jesus and the disciples for a meal. Mary's sitting at the Lord's feet listening to what he was saying. Martha is distracted by her many tasks. She's in the kitchen. She's making a meal for Jesus. Would you call that a good thing? Making a meal for Jesus? Could that even qualify as church work? I think so. So she's involved in church work. She's doing a good thing. But she's distracted. And she comes to Jesus and she asks, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her and he said her name twice, which is an endearing way of speaking. He says, Martha, Martha, you are distracted by many things. But one thing is needed and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. One thing is needed. What is he saying to Martha? He's saying, Martha, I appreciate the fact that you want to make us a meal. Thanks for that. But there's something I'm even more interested in than what you can do for me. It's actually you. I'm more interested in you than I am what you can do for me. And Mary's kind of figured that out and she's hanging out with me. And we're spending precious time together. And I'd love to do that with you too, Martha. In the book Desire of Ages, it says we need the Marthas with their zeal for active labor. If there were no Marthas, there would be no haystack dinner this afternoon. We need the Marthas with their zeal for active labor. But it goes on to say, but let them first sit with Mary at the feet of Jesus. So there's something even more important than working for Jesus. And that is spending time one-on-one -on -one with him. And Mary had figured it out. And Jesus said, 
it's not about to be taken away from her. In fact, he said, it's the one thing that's needful. The one thing that's needful. I told you every time you find Mary in the Bible, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus or she's at the feet of Jesus one way or another. I used to think that she had seven demons cast out of her, but as I studied that more carefully, I learned that at least seven different occasions she fell at the feet of Jesus after he had been preaching somewhere and she poured out her heart of discouragement and despair and confessed her flops and failures. And at least seven different times Jesus went to his knees beside her and prayed strong prayers on her behalf. At least seven different times. There she is at the feet of Jesus. This is the same woman who was brought by the church leaders who hoped to uh, trap Jesus into saying something they can use against him. She's thrown at his feet. There she is at his feet again. And they say she was caught in the very act of adultery. This story just gets my goat because it's very hard to commit adultery all by yourself. And they throw her at his feet, but there's no man there. <clears throat> and then they say, you know, what do you say, Rabbi? What do you say, teacher? And Jesus looks around and I, I have a hunch that inside perhaps his blood was boiling, but he maintained a calm exterior. I also think that before he did anything else, he took his outer garment and draped it over her as she was a spectacle there, caught in the act, you know, and he covered that up. And then he turned to these church leaders. Interesting, the Bible says, beginning with the oldest and working his way to the youngest, which is sort of just a little side miracle going on here. He says, you're right, she should be stoned. So if you're without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And he extends the stone to the gentleman who is the oldest, and as the man goes to reach for the stone, Jesus says, ah, 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 just a minute, just a minute. And he writes in the dust the phone number of the prostitute he was with the day before. And the man backs off. Then Jesus goes to the next oldest, how about you? Uh, would you want to throw the stone? And he reaches, ah, 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 just a minute. And he writes in the dust the name of the mistress he's maintaining that his wife does not know about. And he continues to work his way through the group until there's nobody left. And then he kneels on the ground beside the woman who was at his feet. Remember Mary at the feet of Jesus. And he whispers in her ear, woman, where are your accusers? And she dares to cast a look and she says, no man, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. I love that because the only person who was qualified to condemn her was Jesus. And he said, I don't condemn you. Beautiful story. And he sends her on her way. We find her again at the tomb of Lazarus. You know the story? The sisters have sent to Jesus. He's about 80 miles away down by the Jordan River somewhere. The one who you love is sick. Jesus sends back that message, the sickness is not unto death. And then Lazarus does what we would call die, but Jesus doesn't call what we call death, death. He calls what we call death, sleep. And he said to his disciples, our friend Lazarus is sleeping, but I'm going to go wake him up. And so he comes. Remember the story? And, and the sisters approach. And if you read the account, Mary falls at his feet and she says, Lord, Lord, if you'd just been here, there she is again at his feet. Every time you find Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. The next time we find her at the feet of Jesus is at Simon's feast. Now, before we get to Simon's feast, I'm going to backtrack for just a minute, so perhaps we can put that slide to, uh, on hold. Um, as Jesus resurrects Lazarus, the crowd gathers around Lazarus. This is pretty remarkable. A man who's been dead. So they're all gathering around. They want to talk to him. They want to touch him. They want to see him. And as they gather around, Jesus slips quietly out and away. He leaves Bethany through the gate. And as he goes through the gate, he hears a man calling out, unclean, unclean. This is Simon. Simon the Pharisee. He used to be the pastor of the local synagogue in Bethany. Uh, you need to know a few things about Simon that I found from studying this subject very carefully. Simon was actually the uncle to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You also find out, in addition to being the local pastor and their uncle, that he led Mary down a path of destruction. He's the one who was responsible for what happened as her life began to unravel. 
Mary had loved everybody and was naive and thinking that everybody loved her and that the world's a safe and wonderful place. And then Uncle Simon, unawares, Mary kind of finds herself in a situation where she hadn't expected this and she didn't know quite how to resist or what to do. And by the time it was over, she was a broken woman and, 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 and she was even more broken when Uncle Simon said, now you get out of town and don't you ever come back or I'll make your life miserable. And so she goes to the town. She later becomes known uh, as associated with uh, Magdala, Mary of Magdala. Well, as Jesus goes out of Bethany after resurrecting Lazarus, it is this Simon who is calling unclean, unclean. He has been stricken with leprosy. And when I read that, I said, yes! That's the kind of story I like. Stricken with leprosy. He deserves. I hope he rots. That's what I said. But Jesus doesn't think the way leave end in things, and you can be thankful for that. He goes over to Simon the Pharisee, and he says, I'm going to fix this, and he heals him, which is a problem for Simon because he's a legalist. Pharisees believe you get what you pay for, and you pay for what you get. There's no free lunch. Nobody hands you anything. You have to earn it. You have to deserve it. And he was just healed, and he didn't do anything to deserve it. So as a way of trying to repay Jesus after the fact, he throws this party. He invites all of the great. He has an A-list, all of the rich and famous, the movers and the shakers from Jerusalem and Bethany and beyond. And he's going to make Jesus the, the, the guest of honor, second only to Lazarus, who's also invited to the feast. Because if you want to have a feast that people will come out to, you have someone who's been dead at the feast as well and that'll kind of be a crowd drawer and so there's Lazarus and he has Martha prepare the meal and cater the dinner and guess who does not get invited to the feast Mary and it breaks Mary's heart because Mary has heard Jesus talking about the fact that he's going to die soon and Mary's not the kind that likes to bring flowers to the funeral she'd like to give gifts before and so she decides she's going to crash that party and she sneaks in. You know the story and that's the picture. That's where we find her again at the feet of Jesus. Every time you find Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. She puts that anointing oil on his feet. You know, the, the uh, fragrance fills the room and Simon says something that just flabbergasts me. Well, first, I guess he doesn't say it out loud because the, the scripture says he reasoned or, or thought in his mind, this man must not be a prophet. And I know it now because if he were a prophet, he'd know what kind of despicable woman that is that's touching his feet. And he would not let her touch him. He is no prophet. And I'm thinking, get out of here, Simon. How can you have an attitude like that? You're the one that messed her life up. You're the one that was healed from leprosy. You didn't deserve it. And you sit there and judge Jesus based on how he treats Mary. Ooh. And Jesus says, Simon, I have something I want to say to you. And I'm going, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, I have something I want to say to him too. Go ahead, Jesus. Say it. Say it, Jesus. And then Jesus tells him a little parable about two people who are forgiven debts. One has a little debt, one has a big debt. And he says, which one should be the most grateful, Simon? And Simon says, the one who has been forgiven the most. And Jesus says, you got it, Simon. Because our ages says, Simon was so touched that Jesus did not expose his hypocrisy before that group of movers and shakers that his heart melted down and he realized he was the one with the big debt. And Desire of Ages says, ever after, he was a follower of Jesus. So isn't it wonderful that Jesus gets, loves everybody? He loves the kind of people that Lee Vendon gets exasperated with. He loves all of us, he even loves Lee Vendon, you know. What a Jesus. What a savior. But that's the next case where we find Mary at his feet. The next one is the foot of the cross. The disciples have fled like rabbits. But Mary is at the foot of the cross. There's something about being next to Jesus and being at his feet that attracts her, even if he's dying. There's a beautiful scene in the movie Jesus of Nazareth, which they usually show around Easter time and have for 40 years or more. There's a scene in that film where... 
a woman is bringing or escorting the mother of Jesus to the cross and she's got the weeping mother of Jesus leaning on her shoulder and as he approach a centurion drops his spear across their path and he says nobody can go to the cross and the woman who's escorting the mother of Jesus says please she says please this is his mother and the centurion says you may go to him and he steps back and then, right then, in the film, Mary of Magdala, who is right there at the edge of the crowd, she starts to try and dart through behind the two women. And the guard drops his spear again, boom, right in front of her, and brings her up short, and he says, and who are you? And she says, please, please, I'm one of the family. And the centurion looks over at the mother of Jesus. And he says, is this true? And the mother of Jesus looks back in the film and she says, yes, she is one of the family. And he lets her go to the, he lets Mary of Magdala go to the foot of the cross. It probably didn't happen exactly like that, but I like the way it's presented in that film. The one thing we know, she was there when the disciples had scattered and run. Mary of Magdala was at the foot of the cross. Then she watches as Simon of, uh, 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 jo uh, she watches as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus uh, take the body of Christ down. She follows them tearfully as they go to Joseph's tomb. She watches as they wrap the body with linens and spices. And guess who's the last one to leave the tomb Friday evening, just before Sabbath begins? Mary. There's something about being next to Jesus that attracts her even though he's dead. She wants to be as close to him as she can. They, they put a stone across the entrance but she is there just her heart aching, broken. Finally because she's going to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy she heads for home but her heart stays there. And we know this because it says early Sunday morning well, it's still dark. Guess who's on their way back to the tomb? Mary of Magdala. She arrives there and finds the door, the stone, rolled away. She sees the tomb empty. She bursts into tears. She turns around. Jesus is there. She doesn't know who it is through her tears. And he says to her, woman, why are you crying? And she says, because I don't know where they took my Lord. But if you would just tell me, listen, if this rich man's tomb is considered too great a place for him, too nice, too fancy, you just tell me where the body is and I'll take care of him because my brother left an empty tomb just outside of Bethany and I have a place for him. And then Jesus says her name, Mary, Mary. And the record says she falls at his feet. Think about this. If you count the time Jesus was in the womb, he has been away from heaven for more than 34 years. Do you think they miss him in heaven? Certainly. And do you think he misses heaven? Well, you can be sure of that. In fact, in my mind, what, I'm, what I am imagining is that resurrection morning, all of heaven had come out for this reunion. In my mind, all of the unfallen worlds, all the seraphim, cherubim, they line a parade route from earth to heaven. Gabriel has got some choir ready. They're going to sing the hallelujah chorus or something. I don't know. The father's waiting at the, at the throne to run down the length of that parade route to embrace the son because when Jesus talked about the prodigal, do you remember what he said? He said, as the father saw from a long ways off the son approaching, he ran to meet him, put his arms around him and said, this is my son who was dead and he's alive again. This is my son who was lost for your sake, but he has been found. Jesus was, was, was thinking about the reunion, so you can be sure that he's eager to head for home.
Oh yeah. And Gabriel's there and he's got the baton and the choir is ready to hit the note. You know? And he goes up with the baton and he's about to come down and Jesus steps out of the tomb and says, time out. Hold the parade. There's a broken hearted woman who's on her way and I'm not leaving until I bring her comfort. What I love about that story is that Jesus will place all of heaven on hold in order to spend time with a sincere seeker who wants to be near him. And nothing has changed in the last 2,000 years. He will still put heaven on hold to spend time with you. And if there's one clue to surviving a revival seminar that I would like to leave with you right now, it is this one. Sitting at his feet day by day, morning by morning, is going to make all the difference between a revival seminar and revival lifestyle. Marge and I are grateful for those of you who have come out to the meetings faithfully. We've, we've loved you. You've warmed our hearts. You're a special group. But you know what? We're not near as, as excited about you coming to the meetings as we are about you sitting at the feet of Jesus until he comes again. That's what we really want for all of us. And so... Clue number one to surviving a revival seminar is to spend time with Mary at the feet of Jesus morning by morning and day by day. Clue number two has to do with becoming involved in a small group of some sort. And I want to just go quickly over some basics of the kind of small group that I'm talking about. Because the kind of small group that I'm talking about is going to have a, a winsome, attractive, transformational power to keep the fire blazing in your wood stove for revival. And you just need to be involved in one. So let's take a look at what I'm talking about. Small. It can be less than six, but it probably should shouldn't be more than 12 because when it becomes more than 12 it starts to become a meeting and there's a different dynamic between a meeting and a small group. Form these small groups by personal invitation. We've discovered that if you put a note in the bulletin, we're going to have small groups, everybody come out. The only people who show up are the people who put the note in the bulletin. So if you make a personal invitation, you say, hey, there's going to be a group of us getting together at this location or that location, and we'd like to invite you to come and be part of it because we're going to look at the life of Jesus together. That's what we're going to do. Well, a personal invitation seems to have a way of pulling people in like, like a generic invitation doesn't. So when you make the invitation, tell people we're going to meet once a week in a home or church or some location that works for us and we're going to meet for approximately 90 minutes. And then tell the people that we're just asking you for a 12-week commitment. We're just going to do this for three months and then um, we're going to put closure on it. Now, the reason you do that is because people may say, well, I wouldn't mind being part of something, but how long is it going to last? Because, you know, if I decided to bow out, I don't want to feel like I'm not spiritual. And so you tell them, this is just a little 12-week thing. Just give it a 12-week commitment and, you know, we'll put closure on it. But here's what's going to happen. If you run the small group the way I'm going to describe in just a moment, it'll be so meaningful that nobody will want to quit in 12 weeks. Seriously, they won't. They'll say, this is better than church. And it is better than church because if you remember... In the book of Acts, the church that was growing exponentially was meeting in small groups and homes and believers here and there. There was no central building that anybody came to like this. So it is better than church. And people will say, I don't want to quit. We can't stop. I look forward to this all week long. It's the highlight of my week. So here's what you do. You say, well, then why not... Um, Instead of closing this one completely, what if we take, let's say you have 12 in the group, what if we take and, and divide our group into two groups of six and then we invite six more people to join and we start over again with another group for 12 weeks. Now we have two groups of 12 instead of one group of 12. You say, well, where are you going to get the other people? I'll tell you what. If you run these groups the way I'm going to describe in just a moment, people will be begging to join them. They really will. The people who are in the groups will be so excited and contagious about what's happening for them in these small groups 
that it'll just bubble over. People in church will hear other people saying, see it small group. Haven't seen you since small group. Oh my. Someone gets up to sing a song and they say, this song really means special to me because ever since then we studied this story in our small group, you know, a few weeks ago, the song's been going through my head and someone will go, small group? What is this small group? At the potluck, someone says, hey, so are you going to be at small group next week? And people go, small group? I keep hearing about small group. What is a small group? And so they say to somebody, so are you involved in what is this small group? And they say, yeah, I am. Well, can I come? No, I'm sorry, you can't because uh, we have as many as we can handle at the moment, but we're going to start another one in just a few weeks. And if you'd like, I'll let you know. And they'll say, yes, because you tell them it's the coolest thing that I can remember being involved with, spiritually speaking, outside of the daily time I spend along with Jesus. This thing is second place to that. And I am so happy if you want to come too. Well, why are they so meaningful? Why are these small groups so meaningful? Because what you're going to do is you're going to focus on Jesus and his word, particularly the gospels. No other books allowed. No other books allowed. You're going to just use the Bible and the Bible only. There's a reason for this. We've discovered in small groups we've been part of that there seems to be always... Uh, one or two who want to come kind of loaded down with a wheelbarrow full of resources and commentaries and they're going to kind of dump the whole wheelbarrow on everybody and, and teach everybody all the great things that they have learned from their deep study and their exhaustive research and that's a group killer. That'll kill a group more quickly than just about anything else. So what you do is you just bring your Bible, whatever version you use, whatever translation, and there you are. And you open up the Bible and you read about Jesus. You focus on Jesus. Jesus in his word. That's the first thing. And, and you're seeking to get to know him better collectively in a small group. Let me kind of expand that 90 minute period here by describing three different sections of 30 minutes at a time. So that next slide will be the first 30 minutes. <clears throat> first 30 minutes as you begin is sharing fresh Jesus stories. You haven't started reading yet. You're just telling each other what great things he's been doing for you and how he's had mercy on you. Fresh stories about what he's been doing in the life of somebody you've been praying for. Evidences that you have had of the activity and the reality of a friendly Jesus who is involved in your life or in the lives of others. And as you share these fresh stories, these fresh Jesus stories, they have a way of stirring up the, um, the, um, the heart's desire to know him better. When we were, uh, had a house for sale at one time, uh, a real estate agent told us that if we would put a fresh loaf of bread in the oven to be baking as people came through to see the house, that it would have a psychological effect on the, on the prospective buyer and that they would find the house far more attractive if the home was filled with the fragrance of fresh bread and so you know it's like they step in the house and they go oh, I don't know what it is but there's something about this place I, just, I love this place and I said Margie if they would do that for bread what do you think they do for brownies you know like maybe we could maybe they'd offer us more than we're asking for the house if we had brownies in there but there's nothing like the odor or the fragrance of fresh bread to make you want a slice and there's nothing like the fragrance of Jesus stories in the lives of those who are gathered to make you want nothing like that to make you want to open up and dig into the bread of life. And so that's the first 30 minutes, fresh Jesus stories. What do you do the second 30 minutes? Oh, oh, excuse me, before I do that one randomly, so there on, that's a reason for that. In a small group, the kind we're talking about, you don't, you don't put people on the spot. You don't say, why don't we share some stories, you know? Why don't we read the Bible? You begin and we'll work our way around and we'll end over here. No, it's random. It's random because you don't want people who are self-conscious or intimidated to feel like I'm not going to come back again if they're going to put me on the spot. So now let's move there from that to the next 30 minutes, popcorn prayer. Uh, the reason we call it popcorn is because again, it's random. Somebody prays over here, somebody over here, pop, 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 pop. You don't put anybody on the spot. These are short prayers. You can pray more than once, but they're short prayers. And you notice it says skip the prayer requests. We've discovered that if you take the time to tell each other what you're going to pray for, you usually don't have time to pray, which is so, you know, ironic, you know. 
when we start telling each other what we're going to pray for, we end up telling the story of how, you know, Aunt Mary stubbed her toe and then it turned into an infection and then she went into blah, blah, blah. And then Uncle Joe never even came to see her when she was in the hospital and blah, blah, blah. And we go, tell these stories and stories. And then finally someone else says, okay, anybody else anything to pray for? And another long story and another long story. And then finally someone goes, oh my, we're out of time. Well, would you just have a prayer for all of us? And we'll just, you know, have to call it that way tonight. And so someone says a prayer and, and you all go because you didn't have time to pray because you spent so much time telling each other what you're going to pray for which sort of amuses me really because you think to yourself now now where was Jesus when you were telling each other what you were going to tell him now do we think he's in the other room with his ears plugged and then as soon as we say dear Jesus he unplugs his ears and comes in and says what was it y'all wanted to say to me no he actually heard it the first time he doesn't have to hear it twice in order to get it he's pretty swift and so you know just instead of telling each other what you're going to tell him just start telling him just go straight to prayer. And as you go straight to prayer, the dynamic of prayer request happens anyway because people hear you pray for that person that's on your heart and they join you in praying for that person. And they remember that person through the week that follows because that's how it works and you have time to pray. Okay, the next one, the last 30 minutes. Now you open up the Bible and you find a, a passage on the life of Jesus. Again, you don't put anybody on the spot somebody reads the first verse of that passage on the life of Jesus in the gospel somebody else reads the next verse someone else reads the next verse and eventually you've gone through the passage and when you finish the passage then what you do is a small group of course you prayed before you started this but what you do now as a small group is you imagine the scene you meditate on the passage you contemplate what you have just read and someone says, you know, I was thinking if I had been one of the disciples when that happened, this is how I would have been feeling. And someone else says, well, if I was a little boy that Jesus pulled up onto his lap and then tousled his hair and gave him a little hug, man, this is how I would have been feeling. And someone else says, I was thinking if I was Jesus when they said this or they said that, you know what that would have done to me or for me? I'm telling you, if I... And as the different people give their little meditation on what that verse seemed to say to them as they tried to imagine the scene, everybody collectively says, I've never gotten so much out of the story before. I've only kind of come at it from my perspective, my glasses, but these different angles, these different perspectives are beautiful, precious, wonderful. And after you have... Um, read the passage and meditated together on the passage then the next thing you do is you prayerfully ask what's the application here for me what's the takeaway what am I going to go forth from this this little Bible study cl clutching to and clinging to and holding to my heart and, and so again randomly nobody's on the spot someone says well this is the thing I'm taking away and they tell about how they're motivated to pray more for people they love and care about even if it looks hopeless because the mother of the demonic girl persisted and Jesus came through I'm going to keep praying for the people that matter to me I have hope now and someone else says and I'm going to and before long as the different people pull talk about the application that the spirit has laid on their heart everybody says I've never seen so many applications from a story on Jesus but these are precious applications and so the whole passage just comes alive for you when you approach it in this way now, so far we've talked about the first two legs of the stool. And those of you who have been here all week have heard us talk about a relationship with Jesus' stool. And the first two legs are Bible study to know Jesus. And the second leg is prayer to communicate with him. But we haven't talked about the third leg yet. And that's necessary. If the small group is going to continue and not become stagnant, it has to be involved in the third leg of the stool, which is sharing. And so prayerfully as a group... You put the matter before the Lord and you ask the Holy Spirit to uh, impress you with something you can do to make a difference for him and for your community or for individuals in your community. You seek opportunities for service and outreach, ways to share Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will put something in the mind of someone and they'll say, what if we did? And then other people say, you know what, if we did that, we could, I could do such and such. Some else, I could do this. Oh, that would be a great thing. Let's do it. And as the small group intentionally seeks for ways to make a difference for Jesus in the lives of others, then the third leg of the stool becomes active and the small group does not stagnate. I have been part of many small groups that didn't include the third leg of the stool. And they start out beautifully. The Bible study and the prayer and share thing is great. 
one-on-one -on -one or in that small group and people look forward to it but where there is no active intentional outreach it plateaus and then it begins to fade and finally it shuts down and people will say to me yeah I tried that small group thing I've been part of one of those before it seemed like it was a good thing for a little while but it didn't last the reason it doesn't last is because we don't get involved in the third leg which has got to be part of the package now <clears throat> What kind of preparation do you have to have for this? Pre-prayer. Pre-prayer is the only preparation you really need. There's no training or credentials necessary because you're not the teacher. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. You're just coming together and you're opening the Word of God and you're asking the Holy Spirit to unpack it for you as you look at the life of Jesus. That's the preparation. You pray before you come and you open up the Word together and you watch for what the Holy Spirit's going to do as He unpacks it for you. Anybody can do this. In fact, I get to tell a story right now that I love to tell about Mel. We were in a small group together. Marge and I had started this one and we were doing our experiment. We told them 12 weeks and we're going to put closure to it. They were loving it. We were loving it. It was the thing that was the highlight of our week. We couldn't wait to come to the small group. Mel was part of that small group and at the end of the 12th week we said okay we said we're going to put closure so here we go we're shutting the thing down and they said what I told you we will say we don't want to stop this this is better than church so I said well how about we um, divide our group into two groups and invite new people and they said you're on we'll do that for sure we have people waiting to join we'd love to bring others in Mel said I'll have one at my house and another person said we can have one at my house and just like that they kind of found their own uh, new group and, and they had people waiting in the wings and this is so cool because you know what the Holy Spirit doesn't need the pastor to be there in order for the Holy Spirit to show up and the same Holy Spirit that was there when Margie and I were present went to Mel's house without Margie or I and, and, and the things that happened in the small group at Mel's house were wonderful and people were so excited they would look forward to go to the small group at Mel's place and they would come to church on Sabbath morning and you'd see his small group giving each other hugs in the foyer and high fives in the aisle and can't wait to see you next week at small group been praying for you ever since you mentioned that thing at small group wonderful stuff and then one Sunday morning I get a phone call from Mel and he says, Pastor Vinden, <clears throat> I just had the scariest phone call in my life. Jim Boyle called me. Well, Jim Boyle was the CEO of Shawnee Mission Medical Center, Seventh-day Adventist Hospital in the Kansas City area. In fact, it's one of the hospitals of choice in the greater Kansas City area. Fine hospital, over 2,000 employees at the time. And Jim Boyle was the CEO. He was a member of our congregation, as were a number of the other employees of the hospital. And I said to Mel, but, but Mel, Jim Boyle's a nice guy. Why would you say that was a scary phone call? He said, because Jim asked me to come to the hospital on Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. and facilitate a small group on the life of Jesus for him and the senior vice presidents of Shawnee Mission Medical Center. I said, Mel, that's awesome. That's not scary. That's awesome. And Mel said, get out of here. It is scary. He said, Pastor Ben, you know me. I didn't even graduate from high school. I didn't even finish high school. And these guys have degrees on top of their degrees. Pastor Ben, then I wear blue jeans, tennis shoes, baseball caps, and t-shirts. They wear suits and ties, and they even have handkerchiefs that match their ties. I'm telling you, you know, they, they, they are CEOs. They're vice presidents. These guys are movers and shakers. Pastor Ben, you know what I do. I pump out porta potties for a living. There's no way I'm going into that hospital and facilitate for that group. I would be a fish out of water. I said, oh, oh, hold on, hold on. Time out, Mel, time out. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And the same Holy Spirit that shows up at your house will show up at Shawnee Mission Medical Center. And Mel said, you think so? I said, absolutely. He said, will you pray for me? I said, I will. And I said a prayer for him that Sunday morning. Tuesday morning at 5.30 in the morning, my phone rings. It's Mel. He says, Pastor Ben, I'm sitting in the parking lot at Shawnee Mission Medical Center. I said, Mel, thanks for calling at 5.30 to tell me where you're parked. He said, no, you know why I'm calling. I'm about to go in and I'm scared to death. I feel like I'm going into the hall of the mountain king. Would you please pray for me again? I said, all right. So I prayed for him again. 
And Mel called me that night, Tuesday night, after his day of work was done. He said, Pastor Ben, I called to give you a report. He said, it was the most precious experience. He said, I learned something I've heard said, but I got to experience it for myself. And it's this, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all in the same boat. Porta potty pumpers and CEOs. We all need Jesus. And he said, as we gathered together around Jesus and looked his way, all of our hearts were drawn to him. He said, I can't wait till next Tuesday. And several months later, Jim Boyle shared something with me that I just love. He said, you know, he said, our hospital gives an exit survey to the patients to try to find out how have we done and how's your experience been. And he says, there's some places where you can kind of write in some answers that you don't, weren't necessarily in the options you could check and you can have a chance to write your own little thoughts. And he said, something has begun happening that never used to happen at Shawnee Mission Medical Center. He said, patients frequently will write things like this now. Being treated in this hospital makes me feel like I might have a bit of an idea how it could have been to be treated by Jesus. And he said, you know why that is, Pastor Vanden? He said, because Mel, the porta potty pumper, has met with the vice presidents and myself and drawn us to the foot of the cross. And it has had a trickle out effect to the entire team here at the hospital and it's transforming our health care. And I thought, way to go, Jesus. Way to use Mel to make a difference. And if Mel could stand up and talk to you right now, he'd say, anybody can do this. If I can do this, you can do this. So become involved in a small group that focuses on Jesus. I was delighted to hear Pastor John say they're going to be starting some small groups. I think he said Wednesday nights. He'll probably say more about it later. But they're going to be looking at Christ in his word. It's exactly what I'm talking about. And he said, and if we have more than we can handle to where it doesn't feel small groupish, we're going to divide out and make it small group. You'll hear more about it. But you know what? Whether it's at the church or whether it's at a home on Tuesday morning, or wherever it is, get involved in a small group because if you will sit at the feet of Jesus yourself and then join others in sitting at the feet of Jesus on a weekly basis, the fire of revival will keep burning and blazing until Jesus comes. But you're going to have to persevere. You're going to have to persevere. Yep. A couple of scriptures and I'll be done. Hebrews 10, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. Here's another one. Make these matters your business and your absorbing interest. Persevere in them. By doing so, you'll further your salvation. Persevere. Athletes are disciplined in their training. What are they doing it for? A prize that's not really worth that much. But what we're doing it for is for an eternal prize. And everybody gets first place. Persevere. You know? Everything in life requires perseverance. If you're going to be, do, do it well or get much out of it, everything does. You know? I've had people tell me, I tried, I tried that three-legged stool thing. It didn't work. And I say, well, how long did you try it? They said, I tried it for like three weeks. I, 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 I really, you know, I gave it a good try. I said, three weeks? Really? Three weeks? Huh. How far would you have gotten in school if you'd said, well, I tried that discipline that I chose for my major. I gave it three weeks. It just, I don't think I meant to be that. How far would you have gotten in that hobby, that sport? How far would you have gotten in learning how to use your, your smartphone? You know? If all you did is say, well, I tried. It's this thing. I just can't. I can't make this thing work. Throw the phone away. Forget that. No. Everything in life that we do requires an investment and an ongoing, you know, cultivation and a learning curve. Give Jesus the same kind of dedication and commitment that you'd give to learning how to use your new computer. Give him more than that. Persevere persevere. So my final scripture is Philippians 3. I count everything a loss except for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what I'm going to focus on. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. That's what I'm going to focus on. I want to know him. Buddy Hotel has a song called Bethany. And in that song he has some beautiful things about the fact that Jesus loved to go to Bethany because they wanted to hang out with him there. And Buddy says, I want to be a Bethany that Jesus wants to hang out with. Here's the closing song.
tiny little town They called it Bethany Just a village there Not really much to see A place to which the Savior would depart When the world was closing in around his heart Jesus loved that little town For there he could abide With three who understood And stayed right at his side And oh, the joy he brought that family When he raised their brother there at Bethany Bethany was the place the Savior stayed To rest a while On the night before he prayed A place to Jesus knew that he could go to see the people he knew loved him so anywhere that Jesus chose to roam Bethany was the place he could call home Savior as you bring your love through Jesus, that's it. We want our hearts to be Bethany's. We want to join Mary, Martha, and Lazarus at your feet on a daily basis. And I'm praying that that would be the experience for everyone here, and that it would also become a part of some small groups that meet to keep that fire blazing, because we want to see the fire of revival spread. In a forest fire, sometimes they call it topping. The fire goes to the top and then just races across the forest. I pray that that would be the result of what happens here in Calamasa as people get more and more excited about knowing you for Jesus' sake.